welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that it inspires you because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. On the show today, I'm pleased to have Shani Suleiman, uh, who is a business executive uh, with a purpose to develop exemplary African businesses and leaders uh, who create value through ethical leadership and superior execution. Uh, he was recently vice president of global operations at a tech company Andela, uh, where he led Africa operations across Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Ghana, Rwanda, and Egypt. And he helped grow the company uh, in the Nigeria organization by over 400% in two years. Uh, prior to this, he helped build and operate a new business jet airline in Nigeria for Bristow Group uh, with an industry-leading 98% on-time departure record. Uh, his career has spanned a variety of places, including working at Bain & Company, uh, working at HP, and working for Cardinal Stone in Lagos. He's got an MBA from Harvard and a bachelor's from uh, Northwestern University in electrical engineering. All right, Shani, thanks a lot for joining us on the, on the show today. I'm really, really happy to have you on here. Um, and so for those of you that uh, don't know, so Shani and I have, have, I've known him for, you know, almost 20 years now. Um, <laughs> and our, our paths have sort of tracked almost the same. Uh, yeah. We immigrated out of Nigeria at the same time. I think in the same year, uh, we moved to different countries and sort of ended up back yeah. in, in the same country. We ended up in Canada at, um, at an interesting time, and then he left and went to do other things. Um, so we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about uh, Shani's life journey and um, and how he got into being a leader that he is right now, um, and also some of the lessons that he's learned along the way. Um, so, so first up, Shani, let, let's start with a little bit of background. Let's start from like when Shani was born. Uh, you know what life was like all the way up to where Shani is right now. <laughs> cool. Um, so I think, you know, first of all, thanks, thanks for having me on, on the show, Aziz. I think it's, it's, it's amazing what you're doing and very glad to be here uh, and share my experiences with uh, your, your audience. Um, I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, you know, family of, of five. Uh, I'm the last of three children. I have two older siblings. My immediate uh, older sibling is, uh, is my sister and then my brother is the oldest. Um, I grew up, yeah, I grew up in Lagos, you know, spent uh, most of my childhood here. I think the most the most um, memorable parts of my childhood were spent on the Air Force Base in Ikeja in Lagos, which is where you know, I think the, the the bulk, the lion's share of my childhood was spent. And the reason why I remember that so vividly is because it was a it was a shielded community that you know it was a massive base that had a lot of different soldiers. I can't remember what the, what the population was like, but I, I would venture to say it was it was easily in the thousands. And we were in this like really large what I call a mini city, you know, it had its own grocery stores, had its own barber shops, had its own, like, I think, I think it had a mechanic and, you know, I think it might even had a filling station in there somewhere. And just running around the streets with my friends, it was extremely safe. Um, didn't really know what was going on outside of that, that estate, to be honest. 
and surely didn't know what was going on in Nigeria as a whole, as, as a child. But I remember being being really happy as a kid, or getting a chance to play with my friends all the time, and just feeling this sense of belonging always. Uh, you know, we can dig in dig in a bit more, but you know, if I, if I think about growing up, that memory is, is so is so vivid to me, and I still remember you know riding bikes on the street, even uh, many many years later. Um, so, you know, grew up, grew up in Air Force Base, uh, went to secondary school with you. You know, I went to a few different schools, but I ended up at Atlantic Hall for my, my secondary school years. And by the way, feel free to interrupt me at any point in time. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I remember having this, this weird, um, it was almost like I lived in two different worlds because I grew up in an Air Force Base that was, we, we got to mix with everybody. So, we had people who were more senior officers than my dad. My dad was in the Air Force, by the way. So that's why I grew up in the, on an Air Force base. And we had, you know, officers who were much more senior than my dad growing up. We had people that were much more junior than my dad. And, you know, including the drivers and the orderlies and, you know, other people that worked in the, in the, on the base. And all the kids would play together in many instances. Um, and so I never really knew what socioeconomic differences meant because on the football field, on the basketball courts, we you know we played pool, we played table tennis and we'd, we'd all just do it as kids. We didn't really understand different family dynamics, but then I would go to school and, you know, no, no offense, but at Atlantic Hall, there was a much clearer sense of socioeconomic privilege or, or lack of, and I could see that distinction at school. And so I always felt like I, I walked into a school where, you know, I was this middle-class Nigerian who, sort of by by general standards was not among the the the, the elites in that space and I would do that every day for morning to afternoon and then I'd get back home in the evening and all of a sudden, you know, I'm in this group of people where that doesn't actually matter at all. Um, and I always felt very interesting going back and shuttling back and forth between those worlds. And I and I think that's influenced my worldview today because I have this very strong worldview of you know, treating people the same, no matter where they're from, no matter who they are, and no matter what their, their, their context is. Um, and I think maybe that's very much informed by being able to see that at an earlier age, you know, growing up. So I went to Atlantic Hall for, for secondary school. And then towards the very end of Atlantic Hall, I remember my, you know, my dad called me and said, just so you know, you're going to be moving in December. Just, just a surprise. <laughs> just a casual, <laughs> casual thing. <laughs> casual thing. And by the way, just for, for, you know, for context, you know, people might think, oh, I, I, this guy I used to travel all the time. I, I think I left Nigeria twice prior to that. Uh, and I'd been to London once and I'd been to, to the US once as well. And so for me, living abroad was not something that I even understood was like a thing that I would ever be considering at the time. And more importantly than that, I'd been informed by a couple of the teachers that I was being made a prefect in my final year in, in secondary school. And, and, you know, for those of you who understand the Nigerian schooling system, well, I think even a British schooling system, being a prefect means that you are basically part of the student leadership and you, a lot of perks and, um, a lot of perks come with, with, with those titles. And so you basically become part of the group of people that are running the school. And so I, I was very excited about being in a position of influence and leading. And in some ways, I also had some more sinister things that I was excited about in terms of how I could exert my dominance on campus. <laughs> so I was, I was extremely disappointed in, in that news. It, it broke my heart 
and I couldn't believe it. I didn't want to go to Paris. I didn't know what what, it, what I didn't know where France was, frankly. Uh, but you know, he just told me you're, you're coming with me to France, and that's going to happen. So this was probably in June or July when he when he told me this. Uh, fast forward to December of 1999, and you know this thing actually actualized. He had been transferred to France by by, by the Air Force, and he was playing a role at the embassy in Paris and covering a few countries in, in Europe. And so he, you know, he and my mom agreed that they would have me go with him. At the time, my brother and sister were, my brother had already graduated from, from um, high school and had relocated to the U.S. for university. My sister was just getting ready to wrap up um, her secondary school degree, or secondary school, you know, uh, program, and then also would, would move on to university. So I was the only kid that would have been left in Nigeria at the end of this. And so I think my parents both agreed that it's a good opportunity to get me to have um, more exposure outside of Nigeria. And... So I basically packed up my things and, and left. And it was just my father and I both relocating to Paris. And, you know, my, my brother and sister moving to the U.S. My mother had a job in Nigeria that she didn't want to just leave overnight. So she decided to stick around for about a year. And then she was going to join them in the U.S. afterwards, you know, while they were in school. Wow. Um, so that's getting up until, you know, sort of end of high school. But uh, there's some funny stories from being in Paris. I'll, we'll talk about those. Yeah. So, so let me <laughs> ask then, I mean, how did that feel? Like you, you you're you're leaving the 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 only environment that you've known for much of your life um yeah. family is effectively sort of splitting up in different parts of the world and you're alone in with your dad in Europe and you're supposed to go to school there and and do all yeah. these things there while he's off doing his job with with people that yeah. he probably already knows how how did that feel for you I'll be honest with you I so my my last day of school I mean everybody was happy for me for some reason right in in Nigeria cuz I guess they figured I was going to a greener pastures, if you will. Mm. But for me, it was depressing. I, I cried. I mean, like I cried nonstop on, on my last day of school. I, had to, I think I had to leave um, the gates of the school and run to the car and, and, and drive off while I was being driven. I, you know, I was too young to drive. Um, but, but to get out of school because I was crying, I didn't want people to see me crying. And I think some people did. Uh, some people did see me crying. But it was, it, was, it was really heartbreaking. I was leaving this thing that I, I knew. Um, I spent my whole life here. And, you know, I actually enjoyed going to Atlantic Hall. I, I had good friends. I loved being, being in school there. I had a good time there as well. And I also loved living on, in, in the Air Force base. Like it was, it was family, it was home. You know, people would come to your house and just show up without announcing um, on weekends. And so I felt like my world was being ripped apart in a way. The other thing is I'd never lived apart from my mother up until then. Right. So every time I went, everywhere I went to school, I was, I was, uh, I never went to boarding school. So I always came back home every day. And my mom's job was, you know, she worked at the airports in, in, uh, in Nigeria. She was a civil engineer in Lagos. And so her, the drive to her office was probably a 15 minute drive from, from home or 20 minute drive from home. And so my mom was there every single morning and she was back from work every single day. And so I, we got to spend a lot of time together. We had a very, very strong relationship. So being ripped away from, from her, uh, that was, that was tough. Um, I think it took me, you know, several months to even begin to adjust when I, when I arrived in Paris. Uh, I didn't know the language. I didn't understand the people. Um, the, it was cold. <laughs> there was yeah. no way. I, I arrived in this December of 99, yeah. you know, uh, it was really, really cold. And I didn't understand at the time that you could wear like heavily insulated jackets. I thought, you know, every jacket was the same and you just had to layer up. So I wear a t-shirt and then a sweater and then another sweater and then a jacket on top. Um, <laughs> and, you know, years later I find out about things like Canada goose, but didn't know about that then. So, I really, I really hated the experience at first. Uh, I also had a couple of situations when I first arrived of, you know, French people being French people and not being very hospitable to English speakers. 
And so I, I just felt like, what, what am I doing here? You know, I'm in this foreign land. And I think uh, I'll speak to, maybe later on in this conversation, I'll speak to how that also began to inform my views on Nigeria because I think it was the first time I realized that people, this was normal for a lot of Nigerians who had the, the opportunity or the privilege to get out. They did, they got out. And that meant that I was, I was born and raised in a country where um, the average person who was affluent would be split from their family at some point. Now, my family was not affluent. We got lucky. Uh, my, my tuition was being funded by the government because they were sending us out on, you know, on an international assignment. Um, but otherwise, my, my family would definitely not have been able to afford to send me out, um, you know, for school at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it, it was it was really interesting being in that position and realizing that, you know, this is actually very normal for most people. But very heartbroken, uh, I'd say, for the first few months at least. So you finished high school in in Paris, right? Um, yes, I did. And how how did how and when did you proceed to university? When did did you start that in Paris before moving to the United States, or or did you complete you know like a full undergrad uh, in in Europe? I completed. I actually moved immediately or directly from from completing you know high school or secondary school, whatever you want to call it, yeah. to to university in the U.S. So when I was, I already knew that I wanted to go to university in the U.S. Uh, I think it's, I, I always had this idea of campus life. You know, you watch the movies and you watch the you know, sort of TV and you, you you develop this idea of what it's like to be a student in university in America. And it just felt like a lot of fun, a lot of freedom. And so I always thought I wanted to go be on campus in the U.S. Um, I actually did not realize at the time that the U.S. education was superior to a lot of other countries when it comes to university especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but it was just like, it was like a thing that, you know, I went to, by the way, I went to the American school in Paris. So that also influenced my thinking because I got more exposed to what an American university could look like. Right. Uh, but I didn't know, I didn't know what this, you know, I, I'd heard of certain schools in Nigeria. You, you hear about, there's some brand names you hear about in Nigeria um, all the time when, you know, growing up. But I didn't really know what it took to get into these schools. I didn't really know how they operated. So I got lucky. Uh, our, our school, the American School of Paris, had a guidance counselor who would basically talk to students and help them understand what their options were, help them think about where to apply, help them, you know, actually get the application in. And so my guidance counselor had, you know, began to educate me about schools like Northwestern and, um, you know, University of Pennsylvania and Princeton and the rest. Uh, but I ended up applying to, I ended up applying to, to those schools, but also applying to the school called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And the reason for that is because she was able to, basically put my name in for a scholarship and if you if you get picked you basically get locked in in your junior year in in high school which is you know the equivalent of the the, the year before the final year in high school right and so before i even got to my last year i already had the scholarship ready waiting for me and i had to just meet a certain a gpa and then i would i would be admitted and get a massive discount on, on my university fee so my parents of course were happy about that <laughs> they're like yeah we know you, you might want to go somewhere else but uh yeah this discount is is, is nice yeah, yeah. and you know we're civil servants so we would rather do that uh, so i ended up doing my first year at, at Rensselaer. okay and then i transferred afterwards to northwestern which i already got into out of secondary school out of high school but my parents you know didn't want me to go there because it was too expensive um they actually saved up a little bit of money like over the years uh once they knew that you know we were going to try to go to, the, to school in the u.s uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I went to Northwestern and that's where I spent the, the rest of my, my time in cool. just north of Chicago. Interesting. 
So how um, moving to the United States, right? You're now a yes. bit closer to some family members, right? Because yeah. your brother, your sister, yes. they're already there. Yeah. Um, yeah. How was the landing into the United States? You know, it's it's very <laughs> different from the from from Europe. Uh, yes. There are a lot more black people. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> how was how was that transition? Was that did you feel again? I mean, we, you've done move number one to Paris, right? Move number yeah. two to the United States. Uh, another culture shock. How, how did all, yes. all that feel for you? I think there are many ways to to land in the U.S. I think I might have picked the uh, the possibly the least exciting version of that. So you know, I, by the, by that time when I lived in Paris. Because my mom, my brother, and my sister were in the U.S. already, um, I was able to visit a few times. So I, so I visited, you know, a couple times a year at that point. Then I, I got into to you know Rensselaer RPI is what it's called, and I told all my friends that hey, by the way, I'm going to school in New York. It was it's RPI is in New York, and I was like, guys, I'm going to school in New York. I'm going to be living that you know New York lifestyle, you know, baggy jeans and your fitted hat backwards, all that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be hang, hanging out with the celebrities, you know, Jay-Z and, and all, all of them. And my school was in Troy, New York, which is very far upstate uh, in the middle of nowhere. It was like a, Troy is a town that used to, apparently used to be, at some point was, was, a boom, was a booming town. And then there was some, some economic downturn and then the entire town basically uh, got wiped out. So they have lots of closed stores and, and everything else in, in the downtown area of Troy. But it's a very small city, but and also just very rundown. And my school is, you know, RPI is probably like one of the shining beacons in Troy, New York. So I landed, you know, the first of all, the flight going in, I'm like, okay, I'm supposed to be landing in New York City. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And I didn't it didn't it didn't like register to me that Albany, New York is not going to be close to New York City. So the first of all, the flight's going, and I'm like, okay, we're getting close. To, they're, they're announcing that we're getting close to the city. I don't see any skyscrapers. Right. I, don't, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see those buildings I recognize from the movies. And we land, and I'm, I get out the airport. I'm like, uh, what is Albany? We didn't have Google Maps then. We didn't have Google Earth. So you know, it was like MapQuest uh, navigated our way, way to the campus. I think it was either MapQuest or like a physical map. Yeah, I think and it was a map at the I, time. Yeah, because MapQuest map yeah. wasn't that there, huge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When we got there, I was like, what the hell is this? You know, I was, I was so shocked. I just come from living in Lagos, which is, you know, one of the most bustling cities in the world. I just come from living in Paris, which is, you know, huge, like tourist attraction with lots of people. And now I'm in Troy, New York. Uh, and I, I, I started asking myself how in the world I ended up there. So yeah, that was not a fun arrival. Hmm. <laughs> and, and the adjustment became a little bit difficult for me. Um, you know, just, I think, on the one hand, it was great to be free. I think the U.S. and the university universities in the U.S. you know give a lot of freedom to young people, which has it's, a, it's both a blessing and a curse. Uh, but for me, it was a blessing because I'd, I'd been pretty free in Paris already. Mm-hmm. My dad was traveling. You know, he covered eleven countries for his job, so he wasn't home. You know, let's say thirty percent of the time, which means I had to navigate around Paris on my own and figure things out myself. So by the time I got to the U.S., it would have been hard for me to then get constrained again. So I love that the, the freedom I had, you know, being on campus and being able to move around as I pleased, uh, as I wanted. And um, I, I actually adjusted pretty well to, to living in the U.S. It's just Troy, New York was, was a hard place to, to be. So I struggled with that. So you uh, at Northwestern, you you studied uh, electrical engineering. 
Um, yeah. what, what was the driving, uh, the driving motivator to actually get into engineering as, as a program? Yeah, it was, it was um, two things. One is my mother was a civil engineer and my mom and I are very close and I admire her a lot. So I, I, I always thought I wanted to be an engineer just because I saw an awesome engineer every day when I was growing up. Um, how I picked electrical specifically was when I, when I moved to Paris in 99, I remember right before I moved, my parents had just gotten um, the Mozilla StarTac. Because cell phones, I think uh, cell phones just become a thing in Nigeria at the time, but it was still very expensive to buy one. So we waited till, you know, the prices came down a bit. My parents were able to get a StarTac. And I remember using that thing. And for me, that was life changing because prior to that, you know, if you and I wanted to meet up when we were in secondary school, uh, we would pick a place, maybe like tantalizers, right? Or I think Big Mac was one of the, one of the places we used to go back then. Mm-hmm, yep. we'd, pick a, we'd pick a location, we'd pick a time. And then you kind of just go. And if you got there before me, then if we were supposed to meet up at four o'clock and you got there at four, you know, 3.59 and you waited till 4.10 and I hadn't showed up, you started wondering, is it going to come? Is it not going to come? Is there traffic? Is he stuck somewhere? And you kind of had to decide how long you're going to wait. And there's just lots of friction with, with it interacting, you know, prior to that. But we never thought it was a big deal. You know, you waited and then I showed up and all of a sudden, I would call the person on the way there be like, hey, by the way, I'm 50 minutes late, you know, just hang out. And then, oh yeah, okay, cool. I know you'll be there. And I was like, wait, hold on. I don't have to guess <laughs> what's going on <laughs> anymore. So for me, that was like life changing. And I just knew that cell phones would change the world somehow. I didn't know how, but I'm like, this thing is going to change the world. So when I got to Paris, again, I just come from a place where my family had one cell phone. Uh, we had, you know, one like we had an internet modem, you know, dial-up internet, and we had one computer at home, and we take turns using the computer. I got to Paris, and there were just cell phones everywhere. Like everyone had a cell phone. Ten-year-olds, thirteen-year-olds had a cell phone. Uh, credit was super cheap, and all my friends at school had cell phones, and we'd just be using them to text each other and you know call each other. And then computers were everywhere. I mean, it's just like a massive proliferation of, of devices everywhere, and so. I thought to myself, this thing is definitely going to change the world. I, I'm already seeing the way it's changing the world. And I became really fascinated by these devices. I would I would basically open up phones and look inside to see how they worked and you know play with the motherboard, uh, read up on them online. I became extremely obsessed. I started going into phone trading. So I would buy a phone, use it for a while, you know, get tired of it and then sell it and then buy another one. Oh, wow. uh, and this followed, you know, this followed me for years, even in university, uh, I was doing that as well. So studying le- electrical engineering for me was the purpose of that for me actually was how do I design the future of mobile phones? That was what I wanted. That was what I wanted to do. That was my dream. That was my life. I was upset. I mean, I would spend hours every week just reading up on, I knew every phone model. I knew, I mean, all the way down to how long the battery lasted. I knew everything that you should have known about phones at the time. Um, but that's why I studied electrical engineering. Nice. Very good. Yeah. Very good. And, and so I guess, you know, that, that leads you into, you know, uh, your, the, the different career paths that you took, um, you know, started yeah. off with, with, you know, working in, in the industry, um, in electrical engineering. And then, you know, you land at, at Bain, uh, which is your, your first foray into a, into a consulting firm. Um, what was that experience like for you? And, and why did you choose to go into consulting to begin with? Yeah, so 
let me actually back up to Troy, New York for a second and tell a story that's it's completely random and then I'll, I'll fast forward. So when I was in Troy, New York, uh, there were a few of us who were friends at RPI, first year of university again. And we would go to this bar. I can't remember what, what it was called. Um, we would go to a bar and you know hang out. And one day, so my parents had like, bought me a cell phone. And one day... I remember pressure, you know, really pressuring my mom to buy me that phone, and she was like, "It's expensive," and I basically was able to get her to buy it. So one day, I go to I go to the bar. We go to the bar. You know, one of my friends had, had a car, so we, we'd all squeeze ourselves into his car and go. And when we left, I go back to the dorm, and I couldn't find my phone. I was like, "Guys, I think I dropped my phone," and they're like, "Well, maybe, maybe not." So we, I thought they were joking around. So I, we, you know, I asked them for it, and after like about an hour of saying, "Guys, you know, stop kidding around." Eventually, it was like, okay, we really, we really don't have your phone. Uh, we didn't take it this time. We, we, you know, we played a lot of pranks, but this time it wasn't a prank. Mm. So I decided to call the phone <laughs> I, because I figured, okay, I, I probably dropped it. So I called the phone and someone picked it up and it's like a woman. And she's like, yeah, I, 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 you know, I picked up your phone. Yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. Can I have it back? And she's like, no. I was like, what do you mean? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? She's like, well, you're going to have to pay for it. And I was like, um, it's my phone, you know, I, why, why would I pay for my, I mean, like it's my phone. You picked it up. You saw it like, thanks for helping me pick it up and let me know when to come pick it up from, from you. And she was like, no, uh, you got to pay for it. So I was like, you know what? All right, fine. How much? And she told me how much it was. It was ridiculous. And I was like, yeah, I'll pay for it. It's fine. And she says, don't call the cops, whatever you do. Right. I was like, all right, cool. I won't call the cops. You know, we'll take care of this. I'll call you later on to let you know, like where we can meet up and we'll figure it out. She's like, all right. So for context, in that part of Troy, there was there was like a lot of drug abuse. So we had a lot of crack houses, and um, I think it was someone that basically was was part of that scene that, that I picked up my phone. And, and so my friends advised me, "Hey, you don't want to go meet somebody who was like a drug user and mm-hmm. exchange money and, and get a phone. Maybe you maybe you get kidnapped, or you get you know mugged, maybe something else will happen." Uh, I was like, "All right, fine. So let's call the police." I'm like, "Guys, she said I shouldn't call the police." And they're like, "Dude, trust me. Like, you don't want to go do this yourself. Just call the police." So we call the police. We go to the, the we, we go to the, like literally go to the Troy police station, all of us, and we get there and they're like, okay, what's your, what's the problem? We're like, yeah, we have you know my phone was missing and I got this call from this person and they've told me that they have to pay for it and they're not you know they don't want me to call the police and all that and then the guys are like, yeah, we're kind of busy, we, we have a lot of cases on our hands, so we don't know if we can actually take this. And I was like crying, I was begging like you know this is a big deal, my mom's gonna kill me when she finds out. So eventually they they feel bad, they feel sorry for me, and they decide to take my case on. Uh, and so these guys say, okay, you know what? We're going to go to the house where she, cause we, she and I had agreed we'd meet at this like crack house. Um, and they, the police had confirmed it was a crack house. So <laughs> they, they, they had agreed to go there. And I was like, yeah, you guys just come, you know, dress up as like regular people, drive a undercover car. You go there, pretend you're me. And when the person comes to do the exchange, then you bust them, right? Like I'm actually helping you to kill two birds with one stone. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So they tell us to meet them, you know, on that street where the, where the address is. So we get into my friend's car, we drive up there, we wait for them. Ten minutes later, these guys roll up in a marked police car, like, like oh. you know, oh, the, like Troy Police Department wearing <laughs> uniforms. They go up to the front door of the house. They knock on the door. They ask for the woman. The people in the house say, yeah, she's not here, obviously. Yeah. And then they come back to us and say, yeah, she's not, she's not there. Um, so we're sorry about that. Wow! Wow! <laughs> the police. So I'm like, I'm, I'm super shocked. I'm like, what is going on here? I'm pissed off. And again, I, you know, I didn't know anything about 
you know, police relations with different minority communities at the time. So I just thought these guys were like useless police people who didn't want to do their jobs. Um, So anyway, case closed. We move on. We get back to the dorm. I'm pissed off. So I call the number again. I'm like, you know, now I'm going to have to negotiate and the price is probably going to go up. And she picks up and she's cursing at me when she picks up the phone, like pissed off and cursing and cursing. And she says, you know, I saw you when you were coming out the car, when you were getting in the car, I saw the phone drop. I know who you are. You're the short guy, you know, dark skin complexion. You were wearing like the blue jeans and that, that. describes me. And she's oh, right. Damn. And says, I says, I'm going to put out a hit on you. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, <laughs> so, so let's okay. summarize I mean, it. You're, 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 a, yeah. you're a young Nigerian kid that has emigrated to yes. two countries yes. and, and you're in a situation where you now have some crack addict, Potentially, yes. potentially putting a mark on you to, to, to have you killed. How, how, how does that happen to a single individual? That, that's just incredible. Basically, that I, I, I really honestly do not understand how that, how I even got there. So I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, wait, hold on. I used to hear about this stuff in like rap songs. Yeah. Right. And I, and I, and I, I, I used to watch those things in movies. But for me to be in a position where somebody is, actually threatening to kill me. That, that's a whole different ballgame. So, so and you, you'll discover why I didn't stick a, a, around at RPI for longer than a year. Because mm. I was just like, this is not the kind of community I want to be a part of. Um, but somehow, I was able to call her back. I like literally just started saying things to her. I was like, look, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do this. I, I started just rambling and yapping. And towards the end of the call, I was in my friend, I remember I was in my friend's room um, sitting on his bed and the, the three guys were, were there. I don't know, they were doing something else. At some point, they turned around and they're like, who are you talking to? I was like, oh, they're the woman that found my phone. And they're like, what? <laughs> because at, the t- at this time, I'm, I'm telling her about how I lived in Paris and you know, how, she's asking me how's Paris and you know, I've heard about Paris, is it fun? Like, what is it like being there? And I heard it's a city of love. And so they hear me talking about like, yeah, you know, Paris is like a beautiful city and they look back and they're like, wait, this, this is the same woman that was trying to put a hit on you? And I was like, yeah, we're, we're friends now. Like, you know, I, I don't know what I did. But I think the, the moral of the story was, I, I think at that point, and this is, this is so strange to, to really connect to, you know, decisions I made in the future. By that point, I began to realize that I had a pretty decent skill for like, understanding people and being able to work around like human idiosyncrasies, if you will. Yeah. Uh, if I could get someone that was trying to get me killed, a crack addict was trying to get me killed, to then start asking me about Paris and, you know, whether it truly, like, it's a city of love and all that, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe something was working. So we, so just to wrap the story up, she and I ended up negotiating that she would put the phone off because the battery was getting weak. She put the phone off and she would put it back on the next morning at 8 a.m. And then we would meet at um, some petrol station and do an exchange and I'd give her, give her the money and she actually brought the price down for me and, you know, she told me exactly how I would find her. And so my friends are like, dude, that's, that's a hoax. She's going to rob you, like, guaranteed. So at 7.55, like, everybody, of course, gets up. They all run to my room. Like, yo, call the phone. Let's see, call the phone. Like, we call the phone before the phone is switched off. They're like, told you. My like, guys, it's not 8 o'clock yet. She said she put the phone on the 8. <laughs> I call the phone at 8.01. She picks up. <laughs> Amazing. And <so> we're like, <laughs> she's like, well, you're going to arrange. So now, you know, the story doesn't end very well because... By the time we got to the gas station, um, the phone had gone off because the battery had died. And so a woman actually did come to the, to the gas station and the woman did come out the car and pretend to pump gas. It was fake. But I could I, that was the deal. It was like she would do that. 
and then we, we would know it's her and then we would find her. But she came a bit late. We weren't sure if that was her. We didn't want to go up to a random woman and be like, hey, by the way, are you the crack added tools? That's my phone. So we, we like stalled and hesitated for like 10 seconds. And she literally jumped out the car, did that, got back in the car, looked around for like three seconds or four seconds, and then she drove off. So I think she got scared and thought maybe we'd call the police. And oh, she bounced damn. and that was, that, was, that was pretty much it. But that made me feel very accomplished. Uh, at a, I, was, you know, I was 16 years old. So I think, you know, 15, yeah, I think I was 16 years old. So some, some interesting life skills that you've learned <laughs> in this experience. Negotiation, un- understanding yeah. your target, <laughs> and, and, and also to an extent some customer service, uh, uh, you know, exactly. and, and building trust with an individual. That, that's incredible. That, that's, that's a yeah. fascinating story. And, and I, like, of course, you could use this, you know, particularly in consulting, right? Uh, because you're, you're dealing with, with clients you've never met before um, yeah. and you need to understand their problems. You need to be able to provide some kind of solution that works for them. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Wow, that, that's really good. <laughs> um, so, so that connects to, to what you said, which is, you know, the question you asked me around how, you know, going into consulting and all that. I just realized that I wasn't that great as an engineer. And what that means specifically is, is the mold that I was being asked to fit into. Mm as an engineer, wasn't aligned with the things that I thought I was good at and the things I wanted to do in the world. So, you know, working, I worked as an engineer at a, at a, in a prolonged internship for about a year. And I kept asking questions around, you know, why are we even working on this product, not this other product? Um, like, what does the, what's, the, what's the value we're providing to the customer? Um, you know, how do we structure the company's organization chart? Why does it look this way or that way? And they would just keep telling me, like, this is not your place. Don't ask those questions. Go back to the lab and, like, fix those circuits and, you know, run the experiments. And so I began to realize I wasn't going to make a good engineer in that context. Uh, I needed something different, and I wanted to be a bit more front-facing, you know, be able to understand the business decisions and the management decisions. And I also feel like I'd, you know, now, by the way, I'd been at this point, you know, I'd negotiated with a, with a, with a you know, crack phone thief uh, and successfully done that. I had become um, head of my uh, ambassador for the African Student Club at Northwestern at this point. I'd become vice president of the, of the Student Club at Northwestern. I'd taken on a number of other leadership roles. I joined a nonprofit in Chicago called you know, Motherland Organization at the time. And so I had a lot of opportunities to interact with people and take on leadership roles and work within organizations. And so I was really excited about the idea of doing that as, as a career path. And also then understanding how businesses work so that maybe I could build one one day. Um, and so that's why I ended up going to, to work in consulting and being and uh, had a phenomenal two years, uh, you know, two years and two and a half years actually at Bain uh, from, then, from then on. And that's part one of our exciting conversation with Shaney. Join us on the next episode as we conclude his incredible story and learn how he made the decision to move back to Africa to help build an airline company and how he eventually became an executive of one of Africa's biggest tech startups. Thanks for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Made to Lead Show. I'm Aziz Garuba, and you've been listening to Made to Lead.